Hello. Yeah, how are you doing? Oh, I can't complain. All right. Uh, is audio okay for you? Audio is all we're recording. Okay. So, there are a few ways we can approach this, but I think it's best to dive into the meat of the matter. Can you tell us a bit about AGI and how your approach differs from, say, Monica Anderson's or Ben Gortzel's? Sure. Uh, do you want me to talk about AGI itself, of um, how it's uh, different from narrow AI, or should I just delve into our particular approach? A general summary first. Okay. So um, AGI, artificial general intelligence, really refers to the original intent and ambitions of artificial intelligence, you know, AI, um, the term that was coined some 50 years ago. So the original idea was always to build um, machines that can think and reason uh, the way humans can. But it proved, you know, it turned out to be a lot more difficult than uh, the original researchers expected. So during the, the 70s, there was a lot of investment in AI and um, billions of dollars from, you know, countries all over the world. Um, and it didn't really yield many concrete results. So um, around, around about the 80s or so, um, there was the winter of AI, basically, where artificial intelligence became a swear word because uh, just, you know, it didn't seem to be a worthwhile investment at all. And somewhere along the line, really, the, the term AI changed from this original ambition to narrow applications, you know, and the big breakthrough there was um, uh, a, a deep, deep blue um, winning the chess world, you know, becoming world chess champion, I guess. And um, so particular narrow applications really became the focus of AI work. And since then, we have uh, researchers and students that, that go into the field of um, um, computer science um, really have don't even know the original intent or have given up on it. You know, they're, uh, they, they really just taught about narrow AI. So, so AI has changed from this, this grand goal into, into solving very particular problems and using human knowledge to encode that and solve the problem. About 15 years ago, uh, almost 14, 14 years ago or so, uh, a group of us got together, which included uh, Ben Goetzel and myself, uh, Pei Wang, um, and, and a few others, and um, contributed chapters to, to a, a book that was really um, designed to reinvigorate that original intent and uh, to clearly identify it. We wanted to come up with a name for the book and, and basically the way we approach AI. And so one of the ideas, my idea was to call it uh, real AI, but we all felt that was a bit too much in your face, you know, for a book title. And um, so after going through a long list of things, we decided on AGI, Artificial General Intelligence. So Artificial General Intelligence really is the original in intent of AI of building machines that can think, reason, and learn the way humans do. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's great that 
over the last uh, 10 years or so, the, that, that term, AGI, has really become um, quite well known and used. And uh, so, they, you know, there are annual conferences and uh, a lot is written about that. So we're quite happy about that. On the other hand, there's actually not a lot of work, there's still not a lot of work being done directly in the direction of AI, AGI. And part of that is because it's really, really difficult. Uh, it's a very long-term project. And uh, there are not really a lot of people who even know where to begin. So most of the AI work today is still done in very narrow uh, realms. And that includes deep learning applications, you know, which, which is sort of the latest uh, breakthrough in, in artificial intelligence, using the term loosely. Um, so there really are very, very few people in the world uh, working or trying to directly work on artificial general intelligence. Um, well, that does, creates an, another question, which is, where do you begin? Right. So there are quite a lot of different approaches to AGI. So, uh, and that, you know, s that sort of disperses the field even more. Um, there's the, just to name a few of them, there's sort of the robotics approach, the um, embedded or embodied approach where people feel to get human level or human type intelligence, you need a machine that can interact with the world in, in real time and learn through interaction with the world and that needs to actually be a physical uh, robot. Um, and you know, I think there's some reasonable arguments uh, in, in favor of that. I think intelligence does need to be grounded. Uh, it needs to be grounded in, in reality in some way. Um, but working with robots is just, you know, adding a whole another major layer of difficulty and complexity. You, uh, in fact, anybody who works with robotic systems will tell you that they spend 90% uh, or more of their time uh, dealing with mechanical issues um, and yeah, just kind of the physical limitations of robotics. And uh, so everything becomes a lot slower and more expensive to, to make any progress on the brain part, the cognitive part of, uh, of, of that. So the, the next approach uh, related to that would be to, to try and do uh, simulated robotics that you basically have some uh, critter, some intelligent critter, uh, living in a virtual environment and learning through interaction in the, in the virtual environment. And that, you know, seems uh, a better approach. Um, but again, the tools for creating rich enough virtual environments and giving the right interfaces that you need for experimentation and the tools is, is also non-trivial. So, um, well, you know, I think it makes more sense than physical robots uh, to, to make progress on the cognitive aspects, it's still uh, quite a difficult uh, aspect. Uh, so uh, other approaches, another way of looking at it, these are the kind of the bottom-up approaches, starting at perception and action, um, where on the other extreme, you have um, basically logical systems or systems that try to do automated programming um, and yeah, purely logic-based system, you know, pure inference engines and so on. And there's quite a lot of work being done in, in, in that area. Um, the problem with that is they are so far removed from real-world applications because they typically are symbolic uh, approaches. 
working at the level of uh, formal logic uh, or programming languages. Um, so there's a huge gap to be made up getting going from that level down to any world, real world applications. And they're often, uh, you know, many of these approaches uh, also assume um, unlimited computing power or, you know, infinite resources of some. So they, they tend to be quite far removed from reality and practical applications uh, as far as sort of human type uh, functioning, cognitive functioning is concerned. Um, somewhere in the middle, you get uh, approaches that focus on, on natural language. Um, so you're not quite as abstract as, um, uh, you know, logic, logic systems or, or uh, programming, automated uh, programming. Um, but you also quite, you've removed from the perceptual side. So that's somewhere in the middle. Now, the advantage with language-based systems is they uh, easier to relate to. Uh, for us, you know, obviously we can interface at uh, the language level and they somewhat, at least possibly, they're more, more grounded, they're closer to reality because every, every word you use uh, relates to something in the real world. And if you can kind of close that gap between what the, the, the label of the word represents and, um, you know, what its actual meaning in the real world is, then you know, you, you're getting somewhat closer to, to practical, practical um, human-level cognition. Uh, the other advantage with, with natural language is that one can get some, uh, well, at least potentially, I should say, I should hedge this a bit, one can potentially get some um, early applic earlier applications um, where you're manipulating language and doing something useful with that, like cate categorizing um, text, um, or you know the kind of chatbot systems, um, so that's a, a potential advantage in, in, in working with natural language as one maybe closer to some some intermediate technology that's actually, actually useful. So I, I think those are some of the, the 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 broad approaches, and then we have sort of the under underlying technology um, uh, trying to implement these things, which can um, you know you mentioned that. Uh, Mike Anderson spoke uh, spoke here some some time ago, and um, you know she's an advocate of model free systems. Um, I would say to the extreme of saying that there should be no models at all. There should be, you know, humans shouldn't basically input any ideas as to what the structure of the data or uh, the knowledge or the, the skills that the system needs to acquire. Uh, nothing of that should be given to the system, and the system should discover that purely by itself. Uh, now, I think it's a bit of a misnomer calling them uh, model-free because uh, invariably there's still an implied model in terms of what kind of inputs you give it, you know, the, uh, the nature of, of inputs, whether you're giving it perceptual information or language information. Uh, clearly, you are making some decisions in terms of the structure that you even want to feed into the system, uh, also whether it's a static or dynamic temporal data, um, uh, and, uh, and and of course a data set that you feed into the system, and what kind of tests, what kind of goals you're going to give it. Um, so all of, all of those indirectly uh, impose some models on, on what you're working with. 
Um, on, on the other extreme, uh, you have systems that have extremely explicit models and, and probably the extreme there might be like psych where you have uh, an, uh, a painfully, carefully um, uh, designed uh, ontology. Basically, every, every word that goes into the system uh, is, is handcrafted in terms of what its relationship is and what its uh, meaning is. And I use meaning here in a sort of very, uh, or it applies in a very strict formal sense, basically what its relationship to other, uh, to other symbols are. Uh, so that would be the other extreme where you have uh, a, a, an extremely heavily model-based system. Um, does that sort of cover the over, overview of what you had in mind? Uh, perhaps we can touch on some of the topics I've covered in past podcasts as well. The One of my most recent ones was about neural networks, and we briefly talked about deep learning, but not very much. Right. Um, so uh, neural networks, I think, have, have always uh, actually, actually there's a category I forgot to mention in terms of approaches uh, to AGI. There, there are a few others, but the one major one I should have mentioned is uh, reverse engineering the brain uh, in, in some form, either in a very literal sense and trying to understand the, you know, the, the actual biological, low-level biological mechanisms uh, and trying to reverse engineer them or potentially at a more ex abstract level. So there's there's quite a lot of work that's gone into uh, into that. But sort of the, uh, the common denominator there is that there are um, in some way uh, neural networks. So let's say either trying to copy the way the, the human neurons, uh, axons uh, work, um, or in a, in a more abstract way. And um, it's actually a, a very attractive model to, to use nodes and edges, basically, you know, nodes and links uh, to represent data and to represent uh, activity and skills and perception, because it gives you the ultimate flexibility as, as opposed to some, say, database approach where you have, you know, rows and columns or strict hierarchies or lists of things. Um, um, basically, uh, a graph system, nodes and links, allows you to represent uh, pretty much any kind of data and data complexity, data structure. So, and, and you know, one can argue that it's the way our brain does it. So I think that's always been um, a very attractive option for people wanting to build uh, brains. And uh, the history, though, of um, of neural nets has been, you know, sort of somewhat up and down um, over the decades. And it had lost quite a lot of momentum, lost quite a bit of steam over the last few, few decades. Um, because it didn't seem to really scale up and and uh, give results that were competitive uh, with other more symbolic um, approaches and direct programming approaches or mathematical approaches. So um, there, there's really been now a, a major resurgence of, of neural networks, a technology that's been around for some time, but having been significantly boosted by a the uh, huge amount of data that large companies like uh, Google and Facebook and Microsoft and Amazon have acquired in Apple. Um, so on, on the one hand, they have this, these massive amounts of data and the amount of processing power that's available that could be applied to these neural networks. 
has recently given a very surprising, uh, surprisingly good results. And um, over the last five years or so, there's re really been a major, major change that everybody's jumping onto them, that bandwagon. And, and in some sense, for, for very good reason, because uh, progress is being made. While, for example, in speech recognition, uh, accuracy, uh, improvements in accuracy had, you know, really come to a standstill. There was virtually uh, with hidden Markov models, which was uh, technology used before, um, there weren't really any more gains to be had. And, you know, so you were stuck at, you know, depending on how you measured, you were stuck at maybe 80% accuracy and speech recognition. And then with deep learning, massive amounts of data and computing power, suddenly that shot up by you know five percent or eight percent or depending again depending on how you measure it so it's a huge improvement so really anybody wanting to have a competitive product uh had to you know has to use uh, deep networks or come up with something even better but that doesn't really seem to be anything else uh you know it's sort of the only game in town at the moment for those kind of applications categorization applications um where you have a lot of existing data that you could use to train the system. So, so deep networks are definitely um, uh, showing some major uh, breakthroughs in performance and, and problem solving in certain areas. Um, now, relating that to AGI, um, it's not really very clear um, what role that will play in uh, in getting to human level general intelligence and uh, it's interesting that pretty much all the experts uh, in deep learning uh, you know that work for google microsoft uh, facebook and, and, and so on um, they've all pretty much said that they don't really know how how they will achieve high level thinking reasoning uh, high-level abstract language uh, and those sort of things with neural networks, you know, say, well, we don't really know how that's going to be done uh, or if it can be done. Um, so at the moment, it's sort of, well, we have this, this this hammer and everything looks like a nail, but, you know, let's sort of see where we can push that. And I think it's not an unreasonable approach. And as it develops, perhaps it'll become clearer of, of how how this can be used for higher level cognition um, so there are some problems uh, with where the current focus is on deep neural networks and in trying to use it for agi and and that is there's a at the moment almost all of the successful applications um, use supervised learning so basically um, the system is given a data set and it's given what the input is and what the out output should be. And uh, it's usually, usually given a massive amount of this kind of trained data in order to to teach it or to, yeah, to train the neural net to, to do the task it needs to do. Now, in the real world, that's not how humans operate. Um, I mean, we might be exposed to a lot of data, but a lot of it isn't Nobody's telling us what that is. We're just exposed to the data. Uh, and also we can learn very, very quickly uh, with a single instance. We can learn uh, new skills or new information. So we don't need masses of data, uh, amounts of data. So it seems to be a fundamental, uh, a fundamentally different way uh, in, in, in the way 
uh, deep learning deep networks are used um, to the way what cognition requires flexible general cognition requires so there's basically the big data batch batch training uh supervised training those are all kind of the wrong things for uh, for human level cognition you need uh you need un unsupervised learning uh you need instantaneous learning through single uh single examples um and also you don't have the luxury of a predefined data set that humans selected so those are some of the challenges in which uh, maybe can be overcome by deep neural nets uh, as as they progress uh, and and perhaps not uh, my my own guess and our own approach is that while deep learning uh, will be an important component of AGI uh, to 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 process um, perception and so on, um, that there will be some um, a significant cognitive uh, scaffolding required uh, to make this all work and and to have additional technology beyond uh, just a neural nets. Yes, and when you're talking about people learning something quickly or instantly, emotions play a large role in that. A release of endorphins from solving a problem, or a release of stress hormones if the incident was painful or embarrassing. And I imagine it would be quite difficult to put that into a machine. Uh, actually, I don't think it's particularly difficult to put this into a machine. Um, you know, we actually did experiments with that kind of thing over oh, some 13 years ago already in our own work. So uh, that's emotions uh, in, a, in a computer systems. Um, well, they, they're, they're really two aspects of, of emotions um, that, are, that are important to differentiate between. The one is that a system, uh, an, an AI or an AGI can recognize emotions in people. Um, and respond correctly to that. And that seems to be more sort of a general pattern recognition categorization problem and being trained to perform, to respond appropriately to emotions. So that's a one aspect. The other thing is the system itself having certain emotions or at least having the, uh, the mechanisms that do the same job that they do for us. And some of these are, are clearly required for intelligence. I mean, there's sort of the curiosity and, and boredom and uncertainty. Those are all signals that the system needs to have in order to function uh, properly, you know, uh, motivation, focus, and, and, and so on. Um, but those, to me, don't seem to be particularly difficult to to engineer. They're part of a, a bigger system called metacognition. That's where basically sort of an overall supervisory part of the brain um, that monitors how the system is, is doing and whether it's getting stuck on a particular problem and maybe needs to you know, stand back and try something else and basically to, to manage its different cognitive processes. So while there isn't really any um, obvious way that I can see or I've, that I've heard of anybody uh, talking about doing that in, uh, in, in deep learning or deep neural nets, um, certainly in and other cognitive architectures um, have been designed um, to to implement these these kind of cognitive emotions that are required for cognition. Something that approximates human emotion.
Correct. Uh, you know, as I say, they, they're kind of the two different things. They, um, the emotions that are required for cognition, you know, as I say, like, uh, like boredom or uncertainty, you, you need to be aware of, of those cognitive states. And, you know, but then there are other sort of survival type emotions that, that we have, um, you know, like, you know, anger and lust and hunger and, and, and so on. And there's no particular reason that you'd want to build this into an AI. While it needs to be able to recognize them, there, there really doesn't seem to be any cognitive need um, or even desirability to have, have those in an AI. Well, it can do angry calculus. I think many people <laughs> have done that at some point. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, lacking uh, a human body, the, the emotions won't have the same flavor as they do for us. I mean, you know, for, for us, uh, certain emotions will elicit uh, an increased heart rate or sweating or, you know, flushing or, or, or whatever. So there's this whole component of our body feedback, what our body uh, feedback that accompanies these emotions and um, uh, there's again no particular reason to implement that in a, in a computer, in uh, uh, in order for it to, you know, cure cancer or um, or solve political world crises for us, or to tutor a child in English. Right, right. Or some other language. For equal opportunity here. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned a little while back a virtual entity moving around in cyberspace learning, and this is something that you put together with one of your companies. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they've, I mean, they've, they've been, you know, quite a few, uh, quite a few models like that where you have a virtual world and you have some kind of a virtual critter um roaming around in that world and uh, our initial attempts uh or initial designs that we did we had a, a little mouse that had you know virtual whiskers and ears and eyes and and uh, and then the, the virtual environment would create uh, you know smells and, and things you could look at and, and sounds that were generated uh, and objects that it could feel um, and you know it was a very low re low resolution thing, but it's basically the multiple inputs uh, help the system to find its way around the virtual world and recognize where it was and you know what was sort of desirable or undesirable, or what helped get it towards whatever goal we gave the system. Uh, so that that was an early early design. We actually then upgraded that uh, sort of to a, a dog model where you could also give the virtual dog commands you know fetch and, and and do things like that and um it, it kind of seemed well why don't we allow the system to have more comprehensive language so then our model progressed to having uh an infant um um in the virtual world and uh, a grow and we had a sort of a piagetian model of uh, development stages you know the, the same way a human child goes through different development stages and one, you know, one stage serves as a foundation for the next stage of learning. And we implemented that. And then uh, during that time, we realized that it didn't really make any sense at all 
to recapitulate the way humans, uh, human babies and infants uh, and children learn, uh, because an AI can just inherently learn very differently. You can inject knowledge into it directly by essentially downloading Wikipedia or you know things like that, or at least a, a framework of of, of knowledge, uh, and just because biologically it's very different, there just really was no reason for us to continue with that kind of uh, uh, research. And uh, that's really when we shifted our our focus on uh, adult level uh, language uh, comprehension. And that's really what we've been working on for the last eight years or so. And the ultimate goals of natural language processing is for a machine to carry on a conversation in the way a human being would. It can crack jokes. It can empathize. Correct. Uh, I mean, to me, the, the ultimate goal of AGI is, is really primarily to have uh, PhD-level researchers, you know, AGI researchers, that can help us solve the difficult problems that we want to solve, such, such as, uh, you know, aging and pollution and uh, um, political systems and, and so on. Uh, help us with nanotechnology and uh, energy management and, and things like that. Um, but yes, absolutely, it would it would also be able to have a more personal um, conversation in terms of understanding people's emotions and motivations and uh, being a personal assistant. In fact, I see that as uh, something that you know will become ubiquitous. Um, we we already have you know, sort of these very, very early versions of personal assistance in, in Siri and Cortana and so on. Um, now, of course, they're a pale shadow of what human-level intelligence is. Uh, for one thing, they really don't learn anything. Uh, well, they don't have, they don't understand language. And, you know, the, everything is narrow AI is basically has been hand-coded into them. But in terms of uh, a, a model for what, what I see ultimately happening is that, you know, we will all have our personal assistants who will really know us very well, will be able to advise us, help us, and, and, and so on. And uh, yes, we'll be able to have a conversation, uh, a full conversation with them. But that is really requires human level intelligence. So it's hard to do that, you know, to be able to, it's, it's, Basically, the ultimate goal is it's the same thing, being, being able to uh, having a machine that has the ability to do uh, research by itself, you know, hit the books, read research papers, uh, and initiate experiments and so on. It's the same, the same cognitive abilities that would be required to be a, a, a true, intelligent personal assistant. Well, we mentioned earlier your business ventures. And that gives us an interesting window into the history of AI. Right. So um, I, the, the business ventures I had uh, before I got involved with AI, uh, I, was, I was actually first electronics engineer and had an electronics company. So then my, my background is actually from even analog electric, electronics and then microprocessors became available and I fell in love with programming. So then I had a business uh, building um, 
hardware and software solutions for medium-sized companies to, to basically to run the company inventory control and counting and payroll and all of that and uh, that business was quite successful and it, uh, it two things came out of that the one is it gave me the sort of the time and money uh, to be able to pursue AGI but also really the motivation to to want to pursue AGI because in building business software and putting a lot of effort into that and you know, building a product that we're very proud of and was very good um, for what it was doing, also realized that uh, software products are just incredibly stupid. Um, you know, even very good software is very stupid and very brittle. Uh, it'll basically only do what, it, what the designer uh, specifically anticipated. Uh, so there clearly was something else uh, needed to make systems, to, to build software systems, to build computer systems that uh, have intelligence any, anywhere near like the way humans uh, are able to, to flexibly deal with new challenges and new problems and, uh, and, and to sort of learn on the fly and improvise and deal with situations that they hadn't come across before. And so, so that really started my interest in, in, in AI. And um, I spent several years studying uh, epistemology, the theory of knowledge. You know, what is knowledge in the first place? How do we know anything? How do, what is certainty? So all, all the aspects related to that as well as actually I delved into ethics quite a bit, into morality, what's right and wrong, uh, which also gives me some insight into what that might mean in, in machines. Uh, and then I studied cognitive psychology, uh, how we test intelligence, what intelligence is, what the shortcomings are of intelligence tests, uh, and of course, computer science on what other people had done in, in AI. So there were many different aspects of um, related to AI that I, that I studied. And then in 2001, I actually started uh, my first company, uh, adaptive AI or A2I2 uh, as a pure research company basically said we let's just try and implement these some of these designs and ideas and get, gain some experience and how we can actually build uh, build a machine and we did that for about six years and at the end of that period around about 2007 uh, we actually had a personal assistant prototype that could go on the internet and uh, you know book a flight for you and, and get directions and do all sorts of different things like that um, and but it was you know it was a, a an R&D prototype it was not a commercial product now we, we didn't know that Apple was going to pay somebody 200 million dollars for that kind of technology because we could do pretty much everything that Siri could um, so you know we didn't quite know what to do with it with that technology uh, to uh, commercially apply it. And eventually we came up with um, the application of uh, putting it into call centers to uh, to automate phone calls. Where of course we got rid of a lot of perceptual stuff and really it only dealt with, um, with language. And um, while we used our AGI engine, the, the technology that we had developed over those many years, um, we basically turned it into a, a narrow AI product because you want predictability and a lot of uh, important engineering features you need in a commercial product. So it, it very be quick, quickly became a, a, a narrow AI. And then 
that commercial company, Smart Action, uh, which is now you know quite successful uh, in automating phone calls. Um, it, however, it did take six years of my life to sort of get that you know company off the ground and up and running. And it's only in the last eighteen months, two years, that I've uh, gone back to full time uh, uh, AGI um, development R and D um, with with our new company AGI Innovations. And we we have a team of nine people now working full time on trying to you know move the needle on getting closer to human level intelligence. Then we can gather you have a lot of experience in the field. You've been around the block a few times, which leads me to my next somewhat petty question, but you'll have to humor me. Do you think that Lisp and Haskell and other functional programmers have an advantage over others in designing AI systems? Uh, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> so I'm sure you'll like that. <laughs> uh, I think yes, in the sense that um, you know, Lisp inherently, anybody who thinks of, thinks in Lisp uh, inherently understands that data and program are one and the same thing, or should be one and the same thing. That you basically can, exp you should think of your program as data, and you should be able to treat it as data. Which also means you you can essentially create your programs on the fly. Uh, if you can generate data, you can generate programs. So I think in that sense, anybody um, who thinks like you know who is comfortable with Lisp uh, or thinking in that way, I think definitely has an advantage because uh, that is a core requirement of AGI, and I think that's one of the key things that separates uh, narrow AI from AGI. Uh, and narrow AI basically you know, the programmer just says, okay, what code can I write to get my result? And it's actually one of the, uh, interestingly, one of the, the big problems I found in, in hiring uh, engineers for my AGI uh, companies is that the best engineers often that you get are really quite terrible uh, on AGI because they are so used to saying, tell me what the problem is that you want solved and I'll solve it. And invariably, they'll take their human ingenuity and turn it into a piece of code to solve that particular problem. But in AGI, that's the, the problem you're trying to solve is to build a learning machine, a machine that can by itself acquire the knowledge and skills, um, you know, and, and basically an infinite number of uh, different skills that it could acquire. And it's inherently a very indirect thing that you, you're programming it's a very inefficient way of doing it if you're thinking about solving any one particular problem so engineers often have a, a really really hard time um, thinking uh, in, in the right way for AGI so that in that sense I, I think yes uh, thinking like this I think is definitely a, a major advantage on the other hand what I found is, is more important is that the people working on the project are comfortable with the language they're using. You can achieve uh, pretty much any of the modern languages. You can you can achieve Lisp-like behavior, um, and um, it, it's really what tools you, you you're most comfortable with. We we actually chose uh, 
already in 2001, we chose to go with C Sharp and a .NET um, platform, um, which, by the way, of course, has also we've had a few people applying for positions for that company, and when we told them that we're using uh, .NET, they had religious objections and you know wouldn't wouldn't join the project. Um, um, so you know somebody really needs to be comfortable with the tools. We we I'm very happy with the choice we made. It's uh, you know, a very powerful system and language and uh, team we have all you know all love the language the framework and makes us very productive but absolutely you need to to think think in, in, in a list kind of way yeah I, uh, you did ask me earlier about you know what is different in our approach and i don't think i quite um, covered that i didn't really talk too much about um what we're doing other than so that we are you know, doing operating at the language level. So uh, want me to expand a little bit on that, I could do that. Yes. Okay, I mean, people often ask us what our secret sauce is, um, and um, it isn't any single thing. I mean, I'd have to um, put a, a list, list of items there, but there's one thing that stands out, um, and that is understanding what concepts are. Now, without you know spending literally hours or days with somebody to kind of synchronize context and background knowledge and assumptions and, and experience and so on, it's actually very difficult to convey this. But I'll you know I'll sort of try and just give a, a very very brief summary. Um, so. One of the problems um, that's fairly well recognized in, in AI is what's called the grounding problem. Now, the grounding problem actually means different things to different people, but let's just let's just sort of say here that it roughly pertains to how you can move from tokens, from symbols, you know, words. I mean, they could just as well mean numbers um, from language. How do you make the connection between that? And perception and the real world, basically, you know, how does the concept like dog actually have meaning? And in fact, for that matter, how does language have meaning? Um, I think that's also been distorted significantly recently, where people incorrectly uh, assume that meaning uh, is through like word distance. You know, word vectors uh, has become a big thing where you get it again, get very large databases, and you work out a vector of a word, which is basically its position relative to other words in the text that you scan. So, you know, Google scans literally billions of, of words, uh, and they come up with word vectors. And then they do these, what I call party tricks, where they basically say, if you take king and you subtract male, take the vector for king, subtract the vector for male, add the vector for female, then you get the vector for queen. And that actually does work, and it's kind of a nice party trick. And people assume that that actually represents the meaning of a word. Um, but it only does so very, very slightly and, and indirectly. Um, it's really just the relationship of, of usage. And, and yes, there's because they're used in a certain way, they also have a relationship of meaning. But to give you an example there, dog and cat, the vectors for dog and cat, are very much closer together than the vector for dog and puppy. 
So it kind of gives you an idea. So the, in the literature, you see all of these examples of um, word vectors and where they're doing magical things. What they don't show you are all the many, many more examples where the word vectors actually are totally misleading and give you, give you the wrong information. So the meaning of words cannot be uh, uh, obtained simply from other words. Um, and the grounding problem of how words actually connect to the real world, to perception and you know, external world ultimately, is in the way that concepts are formed. And uh, I think the understanding of concepts and how they need to be represented, the flexibility of concepts, uh, that the concepts are contextual, they, they, uh, they're not platonic ideals, you know, the concept of a table is not some ideal table that exists out there somewhere um, in another world. And, and truly understanding what concepts are and how they relate to perception and, and, and language. Uh, I found that actually very few people who seem to understand that uh, well. So that's something uh, we're focusing on in our project. And ours certainly isn't model free. Uh, and, I, uh, and I think it's a correct approach to, to take to try and do model free. You're throwing away information that you have, knowledge that you have unnecessarily. Uh, there is a lot of structure we have, including word vectors, among other things, and uh, hierarchies and dictionaries and Wikipedia and conversations that people have in books and so on. So there is uh, a, a lot of information that we have that we can use as what I call a scaffolding. So our approach is basically to build uh, a scaffolding of knowledge, uh, which is incomplete and inaccurate. Um, and but it's a starting point. It basically allows the system to bootstrap itself and fill it in with knowledge that it's gained through its own learning mechanisms and its own experience. And ultimately, the scaffolding that we created will be, as I call it, dissolved, or be superseded, dissolved, uh, by the knowledge that is, that is then organically created by the system. And so I, I believe that's a good approach to take. I don't. I don't claim it's the only approach to take, but it's certainly uh, the best approach for the ex expertise that we have, and you know, our belief and our understanding of of the problem. Um, so that's really what we're doing. So we we are putting certain. We are using models to sort of get the system up and running in some rudimentary way. But the important thing is to build in the learning mechanisms, especially to learn uh, concepts and to have the right knowledge representation. And, and ours is also uh, a, 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 a neural network kind of system. Uh, so we use nodes and links, but not really in any of the traditional architectures. Um, it's you know, sort of somewhere in between a neural net, semantic net, or whatever. You know, I'm loath to put a label, uh, label on it because it's uh, somewhat misleading. So that's 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 our approach. The, the importance, really understanding the importance of of concepts to give words meaning uh, and to connect it to the real world. Uh, the importance of context and dynamic learning, um, all of those kind of fit together in our scaffolding system to get the system up and running. Then it sounds a bit like the way human beings develop their worldviews. Yes, I. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm -hmm. Making a system metacognitive 
I'm sure is full of challenges because it's difficult enough to make a human being metacognitive. I would say in many instances almost impossible. Although perhaps I'm using an overly strict and severe definition of the word. Yeah, it's actually it's interesting you mentioned metacognition in particular. Um, I spent uh, about a year on working with a, a cognitive test, um, not quite an IQ test, but something more sophisticated than that, um, that doesn't have the cultural bias of, a, uh, of the traditional IQ test and it really measures the cognitive profile of, of a person. Uh, it was actually a, a game that you play in a language that you learn, all as part of the test. And the, the way the system works is it, it, it externalizes your thinking process, basically how you go about playing, playing the game and, and the, the puzzle, solving the, the puzzle and learning the new language. It, it manages to externalize it in, in, in some way. It's a computer system that I, I wrote. Um, uh, based on the theory that a friend of mine developed in, in her PhD, and she's, she has a very successful company uh, in putting this cognitive test. The reason I mention all of this is um, there, are, there are 90 different dimensions that we measure in the cognitive test, which is the profile. You know, basically, some of them would be uh, how good people are relying on their short term memory, uh, how good they are at um, um, an abstract abstract thinking or how good they are at detailed analysis, paying attention to detail. So they you know a whole lot of different dimensions of cognition. But the one overriding dimension that seemed to correlate very well with IQ and overall people's competence, you know, to do high level tasks, uh, is actually metacognition. And metacognition there is the uh, implicit subconscious or explicit but mainly implicit subconscious ability uh, to realize when the cognitive process you're using is not appropriate for the task at hand so example you, you come across if, if your normal approach to something is very systematic you know that you go step by step by step but the problem you're facing is one where you need to stand back and kind of get a global uh, view of it then people who have good metacognition will realize that and change their cognitive style, whereas people who have poor meta recognition will chip away and, and kind of be stuck in a, in a loop, uh, doing you know using the wrong methodology for the, the problem at hand. So yeah, metacognition, uh, from from my understanding and experience, is kind of a key measure and correlate to uh, IQ. Oh, it goes back to the Gordian knot. Why spend decades trying to untie it when you can just take out your sword and cut it open? <laughs> right. It's lateral <laughs> thinking at its finest. Right, right. Now, a machine can look at a problem, and it has a toolkit that it's either acquired or it has had programmed into it painstakingly. How does it devise new methods of solving something? Mm -hmm. Besides yeah, all, brute forcing it, of course. Right, right. Um, so actually you mentioned an important point. Uh, one, one of the things that we're doing, and I think makes sense for anybody trying to do AGI, is that your AGI first and foremost has to be a good tool user. So it makes no sense for your AGI to try and 
be the best at solving optimization problems or being a world champion at chess or Jeopardy or, or, or whatever. Uh, you know, it may be good at some of these things, but it, it, if it specializes being really, really good in that area, it'll be at the expense of other things. So it makes much more sense for your AGI to know what programs to use. So if it wants to play somebody chess well, it should just get a, the best chess program that's there and, and use that. Uh, I mean, it might be cheating, but you know that would be to get the, the, to solve the particular problem. So I think tool use is actually uh, an extremely important function. If it can use tools, uh, then it can amplify its intelligence or its capabilities, um, you know, enormously. Uh, but tool use would would be one of those areas already that would uh, that would require creativity, basically, and you know, knowing how to use a tool for something that maybe it wasn't originally intended for, you weren't taught to use it for that. For, for that. So learning these new new skills and coming up with those, um, the system will use, uh, you know, a number of, of different mechanisms and some of them will be trying things out, random exploration, but it wouldn't be totally random because it would be confined by the context of the experience that you have. I mean, the same way when we try and solve a problem sort of by more or less random exploration, it's not totally random. We wouldn't just, you know, do anything stupid. Um, hopefully we wouldn't just, you know, pray to our, I don't know, to our cat or to the lampshade uh, and try that, you know, just to try something different, see if it works. We will you know, have that constrained as to what, what kind of experiments might might have a chance of, of doing it. The, the other thing is just sort of relaxing your your error bars or your relaxing your tolerances. So an example there would be if you are used to solving a problem in a certain way. Um, in you know in our cognitive architecture, we often almost always have uh, when you face a choice, you'll have your top choice, and then you'll have additional choices that. Just didn't make it to the top, you know, in, in your in your waiting. So one of the ways to to experiment and explore and learn new things and try new things is basically to pick the second best or third best or fourth best option, um, you know, in a at a particular point. Um, but you still have your overall rationality and cognition, making sure that you know you don't do something completely insane. Uh, so I don't see it. Being really at all difficult to for a machine to be creative and come up with novel ideas. In fact, I think it's much easier than for humans because it'll be able to tweak its own uh, sort of emotional knobs uh, much better than we can. Um, you know, if it, it can force itself into exploration mode and and um, uh, tweak its you know settings as parameters basically to get into a particular cognitive state, which is something we can't easily do. I certainly agree with you on that one. People people are a lost cause when it comes to metacognition. Viva in silico. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think that about covers everything we wanted to cover. Okay. Well, um, yeah, excellent. It should be up Wednesday, probably. 
maybe a little bit later. Okay, great. Well, it's always fun talking about AGI. So, you know, thanks. Thanks for the interview. It was a pleasure.